Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Well, the elections are over and the blue wave was averted and the Dow Jones rose 545 points today to celebrate that fact. The Nasdaq up 194 points, 2.64%. Russell 2000 up 26 points, about 1.67%. Now, you may be wondering why there was such a big rise in the stock market based on an outcome that was pretty much expected. Uh, The Republicans lost the House of Representatives, and that was something that had been, you know, widely anticipated by the markets. But, you know, the loss wasn't that big. They lost 26 seats. I think 23 was the number that the Democrats had to pick up. But the Senate, I think there was some concern that maybe the Republicans would have lost the Senate. Instead, they actually picked up, I think, three seats as of now in the Senate, increasing their margin. And, you know, this is only the third time in 100 years where that's happened, where you've had the incumbent party lose House seats but gain Senate seats. And, you know, there was a press conference today rather contentious. I watched most of it, and it really was uh, incredible how much disrespect the reporters show for an incumbent president. I thought Donald Trump did a pretty good job of handling a very hostile, very disrespectful Uh, press. And of course, you know, some of his answers I didn't agree with, but many, many of them that I did. So overall, he did a pretty good job. But it's amazing that the press uh, was trying to hold this out as some kind of uh, repudiation of his policies. Oh, you lost the House of Representatives. Big deal. You know, Obama lost the House of Representatives when he uh, was president. The first midterms in 2010 That was one of the biggest disasters for an incumbent president uh, since Roosevelt, right? Since the Great Depression, when all the Republicans were getting clobbered by the Democrats, Obama lost 63 
House seats, not uh, 26, 63. Remember the Tea Party? That was all 2010. That's the year that I tried to run. I mean, I ran in the primary, uh, but Linda McMahon beat me, so I wasn't in the general election. But Obama lost 63 seats. I mean, Trump did so much better than Obama. In fact, the average loss for a midterm in the House is 37 seats. And Trump losing 26, he did much better than average, but you wouldn't know that uh, from listening to uh, the way the media is reacting. But most impressive was the three seats gained in the Senate. Barack Obama lost six seats during his first uh, midterm election. So that's a nine-seat difference between what Trump was able to accomplish. Now, granted, there were a lot of uh, Democrats who were running, so it was the Republicans had an easier time. I don't know exactly what the makeup of the class that ran in 2010, how many Republican versus uh, Democrat seats were at risk. But, you know, I think the reason that the Republicans did so well in the Senate and the reason that we averted the blue wave was the Kavanaugh hearing. Remember, I thought earlier, before the whole Kavanaugh fiasco, that the Republicans had a chance of losing the House and the Senate, even though, you know, the Senate was kind of a long shot based on the the elections that were actually being held and the seats that were going to be in play. But after Kavanaugh, I, you know, I really didn't know. I thought that the Republicans were more likely to keep the Senate. And in fact, they picked up seats because that really galvanized Republican support. And a lot of these races were quite close. I mean, if you looked at the race in Florida, in Texas, these races were down to the wire uh, and Republicans managed to eke out victories. And I think that was in large part due uh, to the Kavanaugh effect. In fact, that's why the votes were seen uh, more strongly in the the Senate. I mean, a lot of Republicans lost their House seats, uh, but it was the Democrats who were losing their Senate seats. And because it was the Senate uh, that did all of the uh, the Kavanaugh stuff. Now, I don't know, maybe I had a little bit to do with it. I don't know. I mean, I put out my podcast on Monday urging everybody in those competitive races to vote Republican. Of course, had I not done that and those races gone the other way in a squeaker, it would have been tough at my house. I would have been held responsible. So uh, that uh, that crisis was, was averted. But, you know, the... Republicans should be concerned that the Texas race was so close that the Cruz, uh, you know, barely survived that race. The fact that Texas, that is such a red state, would almost go blue uh, like that. Of course, there was lots of money that was thrown at that race, as was thrown at the Florida race. A lot of Hollywood money came in. These were the, you know, the cause celebs. These were the real left wing socialist type candidates. Uh, that you know, certain factions of the Democratic Party really wanted to win, and it was good that uh, that they lost. But as far as the outlook for the economy or the markets, I don't think much has changed. I mean, I think there was a relief rally in the stock market today that we didn't get the blue wave, that the Republicans didn't lose the Senate. Because remember, lots of people believe now that the economy is booming and that that economic boom is because of the Republicans and the stock market boom is because of the Republicans and to the extent that it's all because of the Republicans. If Republicans had lost the Senate, well, then maybe uh, we would lose all this momentum. And so that was kind of the relief rally. But I still believe that we are in a bear market, that this is a bear market rally, 
The dollar actually was weaker today. It finished off the lows, uh, but it was down. Dollar index finished down 0.32 on the day, 95 spot 99. So just below 96. You know, the price of gold was relatively flat, uh, didn't really have much of an impact. But I think the reason that the dollar was weaker is the narrative is that since the Republicans no longer have control of the House of Representatives, that it is less likely that we're going to get more tax cuts passed through the Congress, at least the type of tax cuts that would be you know, stimulative to the economy in theory, which would be corporate tax cuts or cuts to the marginal rate of tax or capital gains tax or things that would be considered investment friendly. And so I think for that reason, people are maybe less optimistic on U.S. economic growth going forward, and therefore they want to sell the dollar. Uh, They want to invest abroad. Also, looking at the very, very sloppy results that came out of the 30-year bond auction today, that shows you uh, that there is a waning interest in U.S. dollars and U.S. treasuries. I believe also uh, that interest will be waning when it comes to U.S. stocks, today's relief rally uh, notwithstanding. But the way I handicap this, and I've explained this before, I think that President Trump is going to be working with the Uh, Democrats in the House of Representatives in 2019 to pass some type of economic stimulus, because I think the economy is going to be substantially weaker in 2019. They're not going to be able to talk about this huge booming economy. They're going to have to find ways to stimulate it, to revive the boom. And I think Trump is going to try to work with the Democrats, because I think the next fiscal stimulus is going to be more of a spending stimulus, an infrastructure plan, uh, just more money spent to kind of prime the pump Keynesian style. Obviously, uh, Trump will have an easy time convincing a Democratic House of Representatives to get on board. I mean, maybe they'll even throw in some extra money for the Space Force just to try to get a few Republicans on board. Not that they even need any Republicans in the House, and they only need maybe five in the Senate. But I think uh, Trump will get a lot more Republican support uh, than that. After all, whatever Trump wants, Trump gets in the Republican Party. He basically increased, I think, uh, his stock in the Republican Party based on the results of these elections. So I think Trump is going to try to position himself as a guy that can cross the aisle and and work with the other side, especially uh, going into the 2020 elections or trying to position himself there. So we're probably going to get big increases in government spending. We may even get another round of tax cuts, but it won't be tax cuts that benefit uh, the upper income or corporations. They will be targeted tax cuts. They will be earned income credit type cuts, direct stimulus checks mailed uh, to lower income or middle income families. So in other words, these tax cuts won't even create the appearance of growing the economy. They're simply going to grow the debt and lead to higher inflation. It is going to fuel the stagflationary fire that will be burning. This is going to be negative for the dollar. This is going to be positive for gold. This is going to be very positive for investments outside the United States. So I think the smart money was selling into today's rally and looking to diversify into overseas stocks. In fact, some of the bad news that we got today came out of the housing market. First of all, we got to look at the mortgage applications 
for the week. And if you actually look at a, a graph, applications are now at an 18-year low. You have to go all the way back to 2010 uh, to see a number this week. And the reason, obviously, is that real estate prices have been rising. They haven't even started to fall yet, although that's coming as the inventories are building and homes and homes are less affordable. The prices are going to drop. But in the meantime, sellers are still delusional with respect to their offering prices. And so prices have gone up, but mortgage rates, right, the cost of buying has gone way up thanks to higher interest rates. So this lack of affordability is the reason that mortgage applications are plunging. And in fact, I think if you look at where that chart is, we're at probably like a critical kind of support level. And I expect the number to come crashing down below that number. I think that mortgage applications are going to go a lot lower because I think the entire market is pretty much going to blow up. And a good example of what's coming was the earnings that came out today from Zillow. Zillow's stock was down almost 27% on the day. It actually closed just below $30 a share. 29.99 was the price. The high this year was 65.70. So obviously the price of Zillow has been more than cut in half since this summer. And I remember specifically on this podcast criticizing a move that Zillow made that is partially responsible for the plunging stock price. What Zillow decided to do was actually go into the business of flipping real estate. They were not just going to provide a platform for people to list their homes and for realtors to prospect for uh, clients and all that. They actually were going to get into the housing market by buying houses themselves and then listing them for sale. So basically kind of like market making in homes, right? Trying to pick up bargains and then sell their own houses on Zillow uh, rather than simply act as a middleman. And I said, this was a very risky move for Zillow to be making at a very bad time when you had the housing market topping, when you had mortgage rates uh, rising. I said, this was a huge mistake and indicative of a top. And that is exactly what's happening. In fact, if you look at their earnings, Zillow has bought a lot more houses than they've been able to sell. So they now have a huge inventory of houses that they own that they're trying to unload. And of course, they're not going to be able to do it because the buyers are just not there. And I'm not sure you know, how much more they're going to press this, how many more houses they are going to buy. But I'm sure we haven't seen the worst of it from Zillow. I think we're going to see uh, a continuation of the losses of everybody, all the players in this market, because this is a major housing bust. I think overall it will be bigger than the 2008 bust because I think it's the commercial real estate market that's going to get hit a lot harder this time uh, than it did last time. But also look at the numbers that came out today on consumer credit. We had a much uh, lower number than was expecting. They were looking for a $16.5 billion uh, increase in consumer credit for September. Instead, we only got a $10.9 billion increase. And the real weak spot was in the credit card debt. And, you know, Americans are taking on a lot less credit card debt, which is a good thing, right? I don't like Americans taking on consumer debt, right? So that is a bad thing in the long run. But if you're counting on the consumer to drive GDP, 
the consumer can't buy in America unless they take on credit card debt. So if you see a slowdown in the accumulation of debt, it generally means that people are not buying uh, as much stuff. I mean, it's not that they don't need the credit cards, that you know, real wages are growing so much that now they don't need to borrow, that they, they can fund their purchases from their increased wages. That's not happening. Yes, wages are going up, but more slowly than the cost of living is going up. So consumers actually have less purchasing power after they finish uh, paying for higher prices. Now, yes, there were some tax cuts a while ago, and so some Americans got tax cuts, others got tax hikes, depending on uh, the state that you live in. Uh, But I think the benefits from those cuts have already shown up in the numbers. And right now, to the extent that Americans are cutting back on their credit card debt. It's basically because they can't afford anymore. They probably are maxed out and they don't want more debt. The real problem in this number two is that student loans hit another all-time record high. And so this is a negative for the economy because it just means that American students are that much deeper in debt. And of course, if they have more and more student debt, well, they have less ability to, um, to buy other stuff. And of course, the money that is being borrowed for college, I mean, a lot of that money is being funneled into the university system. I guess it's not really out there uh, generating other consumer uh, consumer spending. So the fact that students are taking on more debt, but that uh, consumers in general can't put more things on the credit card is just showing that both consumer spending and GDP is going to be going down. And of course, if consumers are having a problem Uh, buying stuff, they're going to have an even bigger problem buying houses because houses require even more borrowing and interest is an even greater proportion of the decision to buy a home than it is to buy, you know, articles of clothing and things like that. So these are more negatives that the market is ignoring as it's celebrating the fact that we dodged a bullet uh, of uh, having a, a blue wave in the elections. You know, I want to talk, though, a little bit more about the specifics of the press conference that uh, the president held today uh, with, again, this very hostile group of extremely disrespectful uh, reporters. And, you know, I mean, you could disagree with the president, and I do disagree with the president on a number of things, and I agree with him on a number of things. But even when you're disagreeing with the president of the United States, you, you need to show some respect for the office, especially when you're a reporter at a press conference. I mean, it really is a privilege uh, to represent you know, your paper or your network and to be allowed to talk and question the president of the United States, right? And if you disagree with something, you need to be very respectful of the office because it's very disrespectful of the nation. You know, when you're the president, you are, you know, you, you are temporarily holding on to that office, but it's really, uh, the presidency doesn't belong to Donald Trump. I mean, he's borrowed it for a while. It belongs to the American people. And really, you're disrespecting the American people uh, when you treat the president of the United States with that much disrespect. And again, they would have been all over reporters who treated Barack Obama like that if they did. Of course, they would have said it was because they were racists. Um, but the, the press gets to uh, be as disrespectful and as, as mean as they want uh, to President Trump, and, and, and no one calls them out on it. But, you know, and I am not all that respectful. I mean, if you look at the way I talk to uh, the, the congressman when I was a witness, and if you haven't seen 
my testimonies. I testified twice up on Capitol Hill. I do recommend that you watch those YouTube videos. Mr. Schiff goes to Washington and Mr. Schiff returns to Washington. And, you know, I am, you know, I'm more respectful of those guys than these reporters were of President Trump. And they're not presidents. They're just congressmen. I mean, congressmen are nowhere near as high up as the president of the United States. But I was a lot more respectful to them uh, than these reporters. And I was there actually to educate these congressmen, to give them advice uh, on economic issues. And so uh, that's a little bit different when you're just a member of the press and you're asking questions. I'm basically trying to educate these guys. And so I needed to get them to understand their own culpability in creating the problems that I was trying to help them solve. And so I don't even have to show as much respect uh, in that situation as you would expect from these reporters who are simply there to ask questions to the president of the United States. But I want to talk about some of the answers, though, that Trump gave uh, where, you know, where I disagree uh, with what he said. And now one of them was not I didn't really disagree with what he said so much as he avoided answering the question. And that had to do with health care. And I have pointed this out over and over again. And this is a major problem for the Republicans. And Donald Trump is a big part of it. But a reporter asked a good question and Trump managed to avoid answering it. And there was no follow up. But the reporter asked Trump, how was it that he was going to, you know, Uh, work or justify his repeal of the individual mandate when it comes to Obamacare, the requirement that people buy insurance or pay a penalty if they don't, with his support for making it illegal for insurance companies to discriminate against people with pre-existing conditions. And Donald Trump reiterated his support to make sure that no insurance company can discriminate based on pre-existing conditions. Yet he also said that he was glad to have repealed uh, the individual mandate because nobody liked that. Of course, nobody liked that. Nobody likes to be forced to buy insurance if they don't want to. And of course, the minute the individual mandate has been removed, then everybody loves the idea that I could just wait until I get sick before I buy insurance. I mean, after all, why buy insurance every year that you don't need it, right? If you're healthy and you're paying insurance, you're just wasting your money because you're not sick. You know, nobody likes doing that. The only reason that you do that is because you know that if you wait till you get sick, well, then no insurance company is going to be dumb enough to sell you a policy. They only sell you the policy because you're healthy. They're not in the business of losing money. Uh, They're trying to sell policies to healthy people. And then the few that get sick, well, then they have to pay out. Nobody wants to be in business just to sell policies to sick people. There's no money in that. The insurance companies are private businesses. They're there to make a profit. So if you believe in the free market, if you believe in capitalism, then you can't believe in banning the insurance company's ability uh, to not charge sick people more money than they charge healthy people. But the reporter asked, because obviously the reporter understands this, and he asked Donald Trump, how do you square this? How do you... Uh, eliminate the ability of insurance companies to discriminate against sick people, but then take away the penalty that forces healthy people uh, to buy insurance and not just to wait until they get sick. And of course, all Donald Trump did was ignore the question and went on to something else, which shows me that, you know, 
He understands it. He knows that there's no way to answer the question. That's why he didn't. That's why he quickly finessed it and changed the subject so he wouldn't have to confront the reality that his positions are diametrically opposed, that this is impossible. But the problem is by embracing this idea then the Republicans are basically saying that they don't believe in capitalism. They don't believe in the free market when it comes to health care. And we are basically setting the stage for single payer socialized medicine. I mean, that is exactly where we're headed because the Republicans now refuse to uh, defend the free market. Because if you look at the polls, right, 90 plus percent of the people don't want insurance companies to be able to discriminate against pre-existing conditions and they don't uh, want to be forced to buy insurance, which is, of course, nobody wants that. Everybody wants something for nothing. Everybody wants that free lunch. And now that the Republicans have signed on to serving the same free lunch as Democrats, nobody is willing to take it away. So we've completely lost on that. And I really wish Donald Trump would have used his popularity uh, to set the record straight. But of course, if Donald Trump told the truth, about health insurance, and he wouldn't be as popular because what's popular is being Santa Claus. And that's exactly what Donald Trump is doing with respect to health care. Another point that Trump made, and I, I've heard him make this point before, he was bragging about the billions of dollars of tariffs that are soon going to be flooding into Washington, right? We're going to specifically tariffs against China. But he's like, this is going to be great. We're going to be making all this money because we're going to be collecting all these tariffs. But where does Donald Trump think the money is coming from? I mean, he actually thinks the Chinese are going to be sending the money to Washington like this is a tax on China. No, to the extent that the government collects any tariffs, which it will, all that money comes directly from the pockets of American citizens. I mean, the Chinese don't pay the taxes. The taxes are added to the price of the goods that Americans buy. I mean, that's that's the whole thing. I mean, foreigners don't pay the tariffs. Americans pay the tariffs. So if he's bragging about all the revenue that the government's going to collect, it's because he's raising taxes. Now, of course, the government isn't going to collect as much revenue as Trump believes because what happens is the markets find a way to avoid the tariffs. Now, one way the tariffs get avoided is since they're not across the board, since the tariffs are levied, let's say, on China, but maybe not on other countries, and a lot of Chinese goods end up getting routed through other countries before they come to America. And so they avoid the tariff, but of course, all that extra transportation adds to the cost. So Americans end up paying more money to buy the goods, but the government doesn't actually collect any revenue. The only time the government collects the revenue is if the Americans buy uh, the goods that are subject to the tariff because they can't find a substitute. Now, if there is a substitute where the higher price is not quite as much as the tariff, then the Americans will do that, right? They, we might import some products from other countries that are not as low cost of producer, but without the tariff, maybe uh They'll be cheaper than, than buying the product with the tariff. But again, then the Americans pay more to buy the product, but the U.S. government doesn't collect a nickel. You know, Now, it would be good, I suppose, in theory, if instead of buying an import, Americans just bought a product made domestically. And yes, it would be more expensive because if it was cheaper, they would have been buying it already. But then, of course, that money, you would say, well, that's going to go to a U.S. business and it's going to pay U.S. wages. But the reality is, Almost everything that we import from China, there is no domestic supplier of 
that material. So those products are going to have to be purchased from another foreign source that wasn't giving us a good, as good a deal as the Chinese. Remember on the podcast, I talked about uh, the northern Mariana Islands and about you know the devastation from that typhoon, but about the fact that you know the textile industry that they used to have there, they exported over a billion dollars a year in textiles to the United States, and that when we subjected the territories to the U.S. minimum wage, we destroyed that entire textile industry, and they went from over a billion dollars a year of exports to zero exports. It's not like you know America just started producing those textiles domestically that we used to import, right? from the Northern Mariana Islands, we just started importing the textiles from other places, probably China, right? And, and, and so to the extent that Americans, because of the tariffs, import fewer products from China, we're just gonna import more products from other countries. So it's actually going to worsen our trade deficit because obviously now we're gonna have to pay higher prices for the products, because if the Chinese were giving us the lowest price and now because of the tariffs, they're no longer the low cost supplier and we need to find other countries where we have to pay more then our trade deficits are actually going to go up, which is why we are printing record trade deficits under Donald Trump and why his policies are going to mean that we're going to be losing even more on trade and not winning. You know, another funny thing, too, on this uh, specific point is Trump was asked about sanctions, and one of the reasons that he didn't want to do this was because he didn't want to take any action that would cause oil prices to rise. He doesn't like rising oil prices. He thinks that Americans having to pay higher oil prices is like paying a tax. And he said he doesn't like taxes, and so he doesn't want higher oil prices. And so he is trying to craft his policy in a way as not to drive oil prices higher, which is a good point, except that when you acknowledge that paying higher oil prices amounts to a tax, but then you deny that paying tariffs also amount to a tax because the tariffs are more a tax than the oil prices. Yet for some reason, Donald Trump is concerned when Americans have to pay higher oil prices due to sanctions, but he's not concerned when they have to pay higher prices for all sorts of stuff due to tariffs. Anyway, now that the relief rally is over, which likely also included quite a bit of short covering based on the outcome, I would expect to see some profit taking and I would expect to see the markets continue in a downward direction in the U.S. But the, you know, beneath the surface transition uh, from momentum to value should continue. Uh, the movement out of the interest-sensitive segments of the market, particularly the home-building type stocks, that should continue as well. And more money should be flowing into the emerging markets where the valuations are better, where the currencies have been beaten down. I think more people are going to start to focus on the slowing economic data. You know, everybody, again, they keep talking about this booming economy. Even the Democrats concede that the economy is booming because they want to claim credit for it. Although once in a while, again, you'll hear a Democrat criticizing the jobs because they're part time or low paying or talk about the low labor force participation rate. But in general, everybody seems to agree the economy is strong. The economy is booming. I mean, all the talk of the election coverage was about the booming economy, the economic boom. And it's not a boom, it's a bubble. But the bubble is already deflating. The numbers are already coming in weaker than expected. And so as people start to realize uh, that the best days of this so-called boom are in the rearview mirror and we are 
decelerating rather quickly. The growth story is going to take a back seat, and the inflation story is going to take a front seat. And the return of stimulus, right? Because if the economy is going to slow down, then ultimately the Fed is not going to be able to deliver as many rate hikes as was expected. But even if they do continue to hike rates, if the dollar falls anyway and consumer prices keep rising, then the inflation numbers can continue to outpace the rate hikes and we could see real rates coming down even as long, even as nominal rates are, are going up. And so I expect to see a bit of an unwind. I think there could be a delayed reaction in the dollar and in particular the gold market again which barely moved on these results but if people connect the dots when it comes to uh, the type of uh, budget busting uh, inflation generating uh, legislation that's likely to come out of a democratic house and a you know somewhat sympathetic president who at this point uh, you know wants to be all things to all people and has shown absolutely no aversion uh, to running up massive debts. I know he talks once in a while about that, uh, but you know everything the president wants to do costs a lot of money, uh, and he doesn't want to pay for anything, and he doesn't want to cut anything because he doesn't want to risk alienating any of the voters who want something for nothing. He wants to supply that. He just wants to do it from a different angle. Oh, and by the way, it's been a while since I've asked, but uh, it'd be good if the people who are listening to the podcast can review it. I know I asked about that months ago, and a lot of people put reviews. I'm noticing now I've got 1.76 thousand reviews. Let's see if we can bring that to 2,000 reviews. If a number of the people who haven't gone yet and reviewed it, all you got to do is put down five stars. It's very easy uh, to review a podcast. I mean, if you want to do a little bit extra, you can actually write something and give a, a more meaningful review, uh, and you can add to those comments. There's not nearly as many as those. Of course, that requires a little thought, but I do read those, by the way. So if you want to give me some positive feedback, you can put a review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever else. Uh, they have um, they have reviews. Also, you can go on my YouTube channel, give the, my videos a thumbs up, subscribe over there if you haven't yet done that. If you're just listening to the podcast on the Peter Schiff Show, you might want to also go over to my YouTube channel and subscribe to there. Try to help me uh, run up the numbers. I've been told by people again when it comes to the rankings or the reviews of the podcast that in order to have my podcast appeared higher in the rankings, that in addition to the number of people who listen. Uh, the algorithm that they use also incorporate uh, the interactions, the reviews, uh, the comments, and other things uh, that actually cause a podcast to rank higher. I mean, I'm barely in the top 100 right now. I mean, I make it. I remember when, after I was on the Joe Rogan show, I really shot up. I was in uh, the top 10 when it comes to uh, business podcasts, and I was even in the top uh, 100 of overall of all podcasts. Um, not just business this is where I'm, I'm barely making it to the top 100 now. I forget I got really, really high on the list, and I stayed there for a couple of weeks after I was on Joe Rogan, which maybe meant a lot of people listened just once, but then didn't listen anymore, which was a little bit uh, disappointing. I would have hoped that more people who started listening to my podcasts would continue uh, listening once they, you know, once they tuned in. Uh, but for whatever reason, I wasn't able to hold on to all of that audience. But I did keep some. I know my numbers are now a higher 
higher than they were before before I went on. And I want to continue to increase the number of people who are listening to me so I can have a, a bigger and bigger influence out there on educating uh, the public, educating the voters into understanding uh, the free market and understanding socialism and understanding the true nature of the U.S. economy. Not really what disappoints me about about Trump is that he is wasting his opportunity to really level with the American public and instead of spoon feeding them what they what they want to hear to actually telling him what they need to hear because if he really wants to make America great again then he can't just give people what they want. He needs to give people what they need. And that's a big dose of reality. What we need is a lot less government. What we need is a lot more freedom. And of course, to get from where we are, to get to where we need to be, there is going to be a lot of short-term pain for certain people. You know, no pain, no gain. And unfortunately, we're not going to have the pain, so we're not going to have the gain. Now, in the long run, we are going to have the pain, and the pain is actually coming up relatively soon. I just want to hope that eventually we can have the gain. And the way to do that is to make sure that the largest segment of the American population actually understands why all this pain is coming and whose fault it is and what actually needs to be done. So to the extent that people can review my podcast and help me get the word out, we can at least assure that we have a more educated population because the university systems, uh, the public school systems are doing the best they can to indoctrinate young people and making sure uh, they are completely screwed up and have no understanding whatsoever about economics. And so we need to make sure that we do our part to try to reverse that process and unbrainwash the public and get them to actually understand uh, what's going on and understand something about economics and what made America great again. And I think the more people that listen to my podcast, uh, the you know, the closer we'll get uh, to achieving that goal. And the more my audience can help expand the audience, then everybody can, can do their part in helping to uh, educate uh, the public. Because clearly, living in a democracy, it's going to be tough, but we, we shouldn't go down without a fight. <laughs>